There's some notes in your bulletin. If you'd like to take those out, you can follow along with some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. You need a Bible? Take it out, turn it on, find James chapter 1. This is week 3 in our study through the book of James. This is going to be our June and July and August Sunday morning sermon series. Two weeks back, we looked at a single verse, James 1.1. Last week, we covered a whopping three verses And this morning, 14 verses, so we're really going to move at light speed this morning to get through all 14 verses here. I want to begin with a few numbers, not 1, 3, or 14, but the numbers 109 and 59. Uh, That's actually my typo because it should be 108. There are 108 verses in the book of James, and there are 59 commands in the book of James. 108 verses, 59 commands. More imperatives, more commands per verse than any other book in the entire Bible. And we need to remind ourselves when we read all these commands, because we're going to see some of them this morning, that James is not giving us a to-do list in order for us to earn our way with God. He's not laying out, here's all the things you need to do so that God will love you. This is on your notes. James is commanding us to do things, in fact, that we can't do on our own. If you just start working through the book of James and you take all these imperatives, all these commands, and you say, okay, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, you're going to find out really quick that you can't do it. In fact, later in the book, James is going to make that very clear as he talks about the tongue. He's going to say, you don't have the ability to do the things that I'm commanding you to do. Why then all of the commands? What do we do with them? Well, one of the things that we've got to keep in our minds is James 4, 6. We're going to read it every week. James 4, 6 says, he gives more grace. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If we're ever going to make any headway in these things that James is commanding us to do, it's got to begin not with our effort, but with God's grace. Secondly, and we're going to be here soon, chapter 2 is all about faith. He talks about faith throughout the book, but it's especially the focus in chapter 2. And if you're going to make any headway in these things, it's got to begin with God's grace, and it's got to come from a place of faith, of trusting God and believing God and resting in the good news of the gospel. There are some remarkable commands in this passage, and I'll be honest with you, it's one of, if not the most, weighty, serious, sobering, somber passages in the entire book of James. And I put this in your your outline just to to acknowledge this from a, a philosophical standpoint. Theodicy is a human attempt to quote unquote justify God. That's what the word theodicy means, justify God, in light of the problem of evil. And this is something that philosophers would debate and kick around, both in James' day and in our day, okay? Something that they call the problem of evil. James is talking about trials in chapter 1. He's talking about suffering. And it's one thing for you and I to talk about those things in the abstract. It's another thing entirely for us to experience those things in our lives. And when you experience trials in your life and you experience suffering in your life, the one question that every single person just naturally defaults back to is, why is this happening to me? What is going on? 
Why would God allow something like this? And here's the problem of evil. We know that trials and suffering and pain and all of these things are real. We experience them in life. But we also believe that God is good. He's good all the time. Maybe you grew up at church with a pastor who used to say, God is good, and you would say all the time, and he would say all the time, and you would say God is good. We believe that, right? He's always good. We also believe that he knows everything, the beginning from the end. Nothing catches him off guard. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, the trial, the crisis, the suffering, the pain. And we believe that he's all-powerful, that he can do whatever he wants to do. He can stop that train wreck in your life tomorrow if he wanted to. And the question of the problem of evil is how do we hold all that together? How do we believe that God is always good and that he knows everything, the beginning from the end, and that he is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, and yet we still experience suffering? And philosophers wrestle with this. Some of those philosophers come back and tell us there is no God. That's how you solve the problem of evil. There's no God. It's just all craziness. Some of them come back and they say, no, there is, there is a, a being up there. And he knows everything and he can do whatever he wants, but he's not good. That's their answer. There's other theologians who slice the pie a little bit differently. They say, no, God is good. He's good and he can do whatever he wants to do. He just doesn't know everything. Sometimes he gets caught off guard. I have books in my office by men, theologians, philosophers who make this very argument. They say, he just doesn't know. He's a good guesser. He has a pretty good hunch of what's coming down the pike, but at the end of the day, he just doesn't know. It hasn't happened yet. He doesn't know. Well, we we say the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches the opposite of that. We believe that he's good. We believe that he knows everything. We believe believe that he he can do anything he wants. And some come back to that that third leg of the stool, and they say, well, maybe, maybe he's good and he knows everything, but he's just impotent. He can't do anything about it. His hands are tied. And as Christians, we try to hold all of these things together because we see them in the Scriptures. We say, no, 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 God is good all the time, all the time God is good, and He knows the beginning from the end, front ways, back ways, nothing catches Him off guard, and He can do whatever He wants to do whenever He wants to do it. He doesn't need my permission or your permission or anyone's permission. And yet, we experience pain and trials and suffering, and hardship, and persecution. And James is acknowledging that. And I just want to tell you, if you're of the philosophical bent and you want some sort of philosophical argument for how to hold all that together, James is not your guy. He doesn't go there. And I got other news for you. The Bible really doesn't answer that question either. You know what the Bible calls us to? Faith. Faith. To say, I'm not God, and I don't know how we hold all this together, but I believe it because God's Word tells me. He's good, and He knows all, and He can do whatever He wants. And for some reason, this has happened in my life. And that's where James steps in, talking about faith. And what James is saying to us in the verses that we're about to read is this. He's giving us practical advice for those who are experiencing various trials. doesn't matter what trial you're going through, what sort of suffering, what sort of pain, what sort of loss. James is just saying, look, cut the philosophy. Let's get out of the academic world. Let's quit playing ivory tower games. Let's just get down to business. James says, you're followers of Jesus. You are facing various trials. Here's what you need 
in order to remain steadfast in the trial. This is the big idea of the passage. It's really simple. God promises blessing to those who are steadfast in trials. God promises blessing to those who are steadfast in trials. And that comes straight out of James 1.12. Right in the middle of our passage, James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And everything before that verse in our passage is giving us advice about how we can remain steadfast. And everything after it is giving us advice. This is how you remain steadfast. And the heart of it is this promise. People will be blessed by God when they remain steadfast under trials. The question is, in James' mind and in our mind, how do we do that? So we're going to read the scripture, and then we're going to jump in and talk about James 1. Look at James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that as we think about trials and suffering and pain and hardship and testing, I pray that you would take these truths from James 1 and that you would move them from our heads to our hearts. Father, I pray for the people in the room who are in the midst of various trials. And I pray that these things would bring some comfort, maybe some clarity, some hope. Father, I pray for those in the room who are comfortable and at ease And Father, the crisis and the trial and the test is right around the corner. And I pray that these truths would be a rock underneath our feet. 
so that when that trial comes, we remain steadfast. Father, we know that this is something, remaining steadfast in trials, that is something we cannot do on our own. And so we are asking for your grace. We are asking for faith to trust you even when life doesn't make sense. And we are praying that you would empower us and strengthen us to do the things that James is calling us to do. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the story of Horatio Gates Spafford. He lived in the 1800s. He lived in the city of Chicago, born in New York, but grew up and lived in Chicago. He was a lawyer. He was an elder at his church. He was a Presbyterian. We'll forgive him of that. He was an elder at that church, and he served faithfully. And in Chicago, in the 1800s, he was friends with D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist. He didn't go to Moody's church, but the two were friends. And in 1871, a series of, let's just call them, to use a phrase from James, various trials struck Mr. Spafford. The first was in 1871, there was something you've probably heard of called the Great Fire of Chicago. It was a fire that burned in downtown Chicago for three days. It destroyed three square miles almost entirely. Many people lost their lives. And the way that that affected Spafford is that he had taken much of his fortune, much of his wealth, much of his money, and invested it in real estate in Chicago, most of it downtown, most of it right inside the three-square-mile block where that fire burned. It was almost a Job situation where the messenger came to Job and said, everything is lost. The messenger came and said, it's all been lost in the fire. That was bad. But in the very same year, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. And I know that if you dial the clock back to 1871, that the death of a child, maybe because it was so much more common, wasn't received like the death of a child today. But it was his son, and he was four years old, and he lost him tragically to illness. Those things rocked the Spafford family, and they took some time to settle and to regroup and Uh, They began to rebuild. Moody began to rebuild his church in downtown Chicago. It was destroyed, and the Spaffords began to try to rebuild their life on the heels of this fire and this loss. And one of the things that they decided to do, Horatio and his wife Anna, is they said, maybe we should take a a vacation. And their friend, Moody, was about to head across the Atlantic. He was going to go to England and basically go on a preaching tour all throughout England, leading a series of revivals. And they said, maybe we could go. Maybe we could just pack up. We could take some time away. We could go over. We could be with the Moody's. We could listen to him preach. And so that was the plan. They were going over to sort of regroup as a family. They were going over to hear their friend preach the gospel and to support him in that ministry. And at the very last minute, Spafford had business issues that came up. It was just sort of a last-minute emergency, and he wasn't able to go. And so they made the plans. They'd been excited. Everybody was ready to go. He said to his wife, Anna, and to his four daughters, why don't you go? You just go, and I'll come right behind you. This won't take long to take care of. This won't take long to tidy up. You go, and I'm coming right behind you. So they went without Horatio. And as their ship crossed the Atlantic, it actually collided with another ship. Over 250 people lost their lives in the accident. Spafford's wife, Anna, lived. All of his daughters died. She made her way to England. And when she made it to England, she sent a telegram back 
This is the telegram, and you'll see the first two words that she sent to her husband are saved alone. Saved alone. Your fortune has been burned. Your son has died. Your daughters are dead. I'm saved alone. He immediately made plans to go across the Atlantic to be with his wife, to take care of matters on the other side of the ocean. And while he made the journey from Chicago to New York, then across, as he sailed across the very ocean where his daughters died at sea, he wrote a hymn. And this is where some of you have heard the story and you know the hymn that he wrote. These are the words that Spafford penned as he sailed across the Atlantic. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's a man who remains steadfast in trial. I wish I could say to you that the rest of his life was just rosy. I wish I could tell you that the rest of his life had a Job-like ending where he had more children and more money and everything was just restored and made great. I wish I could tell you that he just, it was easy for him to trust the Lord and he didn't have any spiritual difficulties or challenges. I wish I could tell you all those things. None of those things happened. His life was completely different from that point on. But that's a man who didn't give up, who wasn't angry with the Lord, who didn't look to the heavens and shake his fists at God in defiance. That's a man who said, I. I need your grace, James 4, 6. I don't want to have faith in you, James chapter 2. And I want to remain steadfast under trial. That's the sort of issue that James is writing about. And it's easy for us to open our Bible and to read James 1 and to, to read about trials of various kinds and to say, yeah, 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 trials of various kinds, life's going to be tough. But then when you start to make it personal and you think about the trials that other people walk through or the trials that we may find ourselves walking through, it's more challenging. And James isn't giving us a, a high-minded ivory tower philosophy of how to think it all through. He is saying to us, this is how you remain steadfast in trials. This is how, verse 12, you receive God's blessing. This is how you remain steadfast this is how you receive the crown of life. We believe in God's grace. We have faith in God. And these are the things you put into place in your life so that you can remain steadfast. What do we need? 
in order to remain steadfast in trials. James lists four things, and we're just going to walk through them this morning. It's a very simple message. The first thing James says is this. We need wisdom from God. If you are going to be steadfast in the trials, the various trials you face in life, you must be a wise person. If you fall into the category of what the Bible describes as a fool, you will not be steadfast. You must be wise. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a sermon series on wisdom. We talked mostly about the book of Proverbs and what wisdom looks like in our lives. And I gave you a definition at the beginning of that series, and it was from dictionary.com. So back in the old days, you got out Merriam-Webster, and that's where you went for definitions. Now you just Google it, and you go right to dictionary.com, and here's the definition of wisdom that you find there. Wisdom is the quality or state of being wise. You say, it's very helpful. You just use the word in the definition. It's knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with just judgment as to action, sagacity or discernment. I shared this with you and I said, I like this definition of wisdom because it connects our heads to actually taking action in our life. And that's a biblical theme. That's something straight out of Proverbs. That if you have wisdom, it doesn't just exist up in your head, but it exists in your head and it moves down to your heart and it flows out into your life. I also told you the problem with this definition is pretty obvious. It nowhere mentions God. That's problematic when you're thinking about what the Bible says about wisdom. So here's our our biblical definition of wisdom. This should sound familiar. Biblical wisdom is fearing God, knowing God's will, and living in light of God's will. That's biblical wisdom. Okay, You file that definition in your brain, and you come back to verse 5, and you say, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Don't ask doubting. But ask believing that God gives wisdom to those who seek it. That's straight out of Proverbs chapter 2. If you look for it like treasure, if you call out for it, if you set your heart to find it, God gives wisdom. Proverbs 2 says that and James 1 says it. And if you're going to remain steadfast in a trial, this has to be true of you. Not that you can answer all the Bible questions in Bible Jeopardy. Not that you're really street smart and everyone thinks you know how how to handle your affairs but that you fear God. If you don't fear God, you will not remain steadfast in trial. If you don't fear him, you won't be steadfast. You'll get angry with him. You'll shake your fist in defiance at him, or you'll just turn a cold shoulder and walk away indifferently. Fearing God, knowing his will, That's not some secret thing that you decode or decipher. It's simply revealed to us in the scriptures and we read it and we've got to know it. And then you actually live in light of his will. Those things are true for you. You're one step along the path to remaining steadfast in trial. Now let me just say this when we're talking about wisdom. You can also flip this principle on its head. On the one hand, if you're going to remain steadfast in a trial, you've got to be wise. That's what we're saying. If you're going to be steadfast, you've got to be wise. Flip that on its head, and let me tell you something else that's true. Trials, various trials, will expose what you really believe about God. They'll expose you. They'll take what's hidden 
in the recess of your heart. I'm not talking about the Sunday school answers you can give. I'm not talking about the Bible study answers you can fill the blanks in with. I'm not talking about all the sermon outlines you filled out. I'm talking about what's really in your heart. And trials will expose it. And they will expose whether or not you fear God or whether you see him as some sort of genie who exists to make you comfortable and to make sure that you have enough and to make sure that everything's easy. The trial will expose that. Right? Listen to me. This kind of wisdom is not the kind of thing that you come to after the trial and say, God, I need it, I need it, I need it. This is the kind of stuff you want in your heart, in your mind, in your life before the trial comes. You want it before. So number one, what do we need if we're going to be steadfast? We need wisdom from God. Number two, we need to understand money. We need to understand money. Some of you may think this seems a little out of place. You may think it doesn't sound very spiritual. But I'd like you to look at James 1, verse 9, 10, and 11. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And there's all sorts of interpretations of these verses, but by lowly, I think it fits in with the theme that runs throughout James of poor. Let the poor brother, I think that's what he's saying, boast in his humiliation. Because here's the contrast. And he says, the rich in his humiliation. And you read it right off the bat and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think this is like one of those Willy Wonka moments where he said it backwards and he wants you to scratch it and flip it around. Don't you mean, don't you mean that the poor person should boast in his humiliation and the rich person should boast in his exaltation? No, James got it right. Just track with me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with scorching heat, and it withers the grass, and its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let me just mention a couple of thoughts about money and how, in James' mind, this ties into the, the idea of facing various trials and being steadfast. Okay? Number one, many trials involve money in some way. That's true if you just think about your life. Not all, not every trial, but many. You can think of many stories of people who have faced health trials and it has drained their resources financially. You can think about people in the place where we live, in the economy we live, who suffer. Maybe they benefit from the boom, but they suffer from the bust. And that brings a trial. Many trials involve money. You know that that's true. Secondly, trials have a leveling effect on people. And this is one of the things James is saying. Trials don't discriminate based on your tax return dollar amounts. They don't make a distinction between those who have a lot and those who have a little. You can have a big fat bank account or you can have a really tiny bank account. You're going to face a trial at some point. And there's this leveling effect that trials have where the world looks at us and sees status and high and low and lowly brothers and exalted brothers and all these things and trials just sort of make the ground level and say no 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 you're all going to go through these things I've seen people who trusted in money become angry and bitter when their money couldn't fix the trial that they were going through you can have a lot or you can have a little you're going to face Trials, they have a leveling effect. 
Thirdly, lack can help make us more dependent. And I think that's what James is talking about in verse 9. I know there's a lot of debate about these verses, but when he talks about the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation, I think James has an awareness that when you don't have, quote-unquote, enough, you really quick become dependent on somebody who can meet your needs. And hopefully, that's God. And in your want, in your lack, in not having enough, you are driven to trust God and to depend on God. And James says, in a strange way, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And then he picks up the idea of money on the flip side, and he talks about the rich people boasting in their humiliation. And my best guess at what he means, there's all sorts of interpretations. My best best guess is this. James is saying, if you have a lot of money, you should boast that you're going to be gone tomorrow. That something as fleeting as money is not going to save you. Because your money may be here today and gone tomorrow. It may be like the grass. You're going to be like the grass. Here, prospering one day, gone the next. And you need to boast that your eternity is not based on something as as fickle as money, but it's based on the promises of God. What James is saying in all of this, however you want to slice it out and make sense of it, is this. You're going to face trials. If you want to remain steadfast, you need to think about money through the lens of eternity. You can't just adopt the world's view of money and expect to come through a trial steadfast. You've got to think wisely about money. You've got to know what God's word says about money so that as you go through that trial, that doesn't become a stumbling block for you. So number one, we need wisdom. Number two, we need to understand money. Number three, we need to understand temptation. Temptation. Verse 12 is the hinge in the middle of the passage, so we'll skip that. Look at verse 13, 14, 15, and 16. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Don't say that. When you face a temptation, don't blame God for it. Why? God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's Conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I just want you to see what he's saying in the context of the whole chapter, because when you break it up week to week, sometimes you lose the flow of the overall passage. Just look in your Bible while you have it open and look back up at verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You're going to face trials. Okay? You're going to face trials. And then look what he says in verse 3. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we're trying to piece all this together. The first thing we would say is that God aims to test our faith through trials. That's up in verse 2 and 3. There's going to be trials, and God is going to be testing your faith through the trials to make sure that you're steadfast on the flip side of that. Now, down later in the chapter, James starts talking not about trials, but about temptations. Those are different things. Why does he bring up the shift and all of a sudden start talking about temptations? It's because he knows every trial and test involves a temptation. Every trial that you face will also be accompanied by a temptation to sin. And every test 
of your faith that comes your way will be accompanied by a temptation to sin. Why? Well, it's not God's design in the test. James makes that clear. He says you don't get to blame God. Don't say God is tempting you. That's not how it's working. He's holy, he's not tempted by evil, and he tempts no one. So we take that answer off the table. We're not going to blame God. Maybe we can blame the devil, right? Option one was what Adam tried in the garden, right? The woman that you gave me, it was her fault, and you gave her to me, so really it's your fault. James says, no, 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 we're taking that off the table. You can't blame the serpent for what happened, You can't say the snake made me do it. The devil made me do it. James doesn't go there at all. Instead, James hits really close to home. And what does he say? He says, the problem is you and me. The problem is our hearts. That's why every trial and every test that you faced is going to bring a temptation. is because you're involved in it. And I'm involved in it. Look what he says in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The problem is you, and the problem is your own heart. And he's saying to you up front, putting all his cards on the table, you need to know this. You're going to face trials of various kinds. You need to understand that in that trial and in that test, you are going to face temptation. Not because God's trying to tempt you, not because we're going to blame the devil for it, but because your heart is desperately sick and wicked, straight out of Jeremiah. It's corrupt. Ezekiel 36, it's as hard as a rock. And when you find yourself in that trial and the test, you're going to experience temptation. The temptation comes from our own heart. Verse 13, notice the contrast. God cannot be tempted with evil. He tempts no one. He's holy. What about us? Well, we are tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. You understand that that's bottom level, simple, basic gospel truths right there in James 1. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. I realize that in this passage, James doesn't exactly go into a full-orbed gospel presentation. It's because the people he's writing to already believe in Jesus. But look, take these two truths. God is holy. He is not tempted by evil and he tempts no one. And then put it side by side with this truth that our hearts lure us and entice us to sin. How do you square those two truths? That God is holy and that we're sinners. The only way you square them is Jesus. God sent his son to live a life of perfect obedience on this earth. To die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sinful, wicked deeds, actions, hearts, thoughts, emotions. And that by his grace, he gives us new life. We express and put our faith in Jesus. We turn from our sin and we're forgiven. And we're brought back into a right relationship with God. James doesn't spell all that out, but it's all right there. God being holy, he's not tempted by sin, he's not tempting anyone, but you're a sinner. How do those things come together? It's only through Jesus. James doesn't spell it out, but he does spell out the alternative. Did you see it in verse 15? The alternative is death. This desire leads to sin, and sin leads to death. Those desires in your heart 
that you think will make you happy or fulfilled or content or bring some measure of satisfaction to your life or freedom to your life. James says they're a dead-end street and they all end in the same spot, death. So we've got to understand temptation. We've got to understand God is not out to destroy our faith. We've got to understand we can't just blame the devil for it. The problem is me. We've got to recognize that. How does that help you in a trial? I think it's pretty obvious. When you face the trial, you realize my heart could go haywire real quick. Real quick. And you go back to James 4, 6. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. i got to remain humble before God even in this trial. I can't get mouthy like Job did. I can't get, get smart like the philosophers tend to do. I've got to remain humble and remember who God is and who I am. I've got to have wisdom. I've got to know a proper right fear of God and his will. And I've got to actually live that out in my life. I've got to understand the truth about money. And last, we're going to be steadfast. We need grace from God. Grace from God. There's a beautiful description of grace right here at the end of our passage. James 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing in your life has been given to you by the Father. You haven't earned them and you don't deserve them. You don't deserve any good thing from God. But you experience good things in your life. You have these gifts And they come from the Father. They're blood-bought gifts that God has poured into your life. He describes God's grace in verse 18. Of his own will, of God's own will. He just did this freely. He brought us forth. We didn't bring ourselves forth. God did that. Why? He did it by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of all of his creatures. This is what James is saying to you at the end of this passage when it comes to this idea of God's grace. He's saying this. God has saved you from your sins and he will see you through your sorrows. He has saved you from your sins. He's holy and you're a sinner and through Jesus he's made a way. He saved you from your sins and you can rest assured that he will see you through your sorrows. That's the hope of James 1 that allows us to come through a trial, through various trials, steadfast. That's the hope that inspired Horatio Spafford to face the worst trials of his life and to come through steadfast. That's the hope that's being offered to you today. I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to pray.